Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you a scholar, journalist, or writer focused on Palestine? Contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present, and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays, and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals for more info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Massa, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Harris Ford. Harris is currently a PhD student at the University of Saskatchewan, so up northern Canada in Saskatoon, and is the author of a, a brilliant MA uh, master thesis work, which is also available online, and we'll post the link later on, uh, certainly on the page of the podcast. And also is the author of uh, an article that will be published by the Jerusalem Quarterly in the coming months. With Harris, we're going to talk about a topic which we never really discussed uh, too much here on the podcast. We're going to talk about sort of the international dimension of Jerusalem in the years between 1947 and the end of uh, uh, the war. And so we're going to talk about the role of the United Nations and the question of borders and the so-called Jerusalem question. But first of all, Harris, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Mazza, and thank you for having me on the podcast. Very glad to be here. Now, Harris, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why did you uh, choose to work on Jerusalem for your MA project? And uh, without any spoiler, you're not necessarily no longer working on Jerusalem for your PhD, but I'm curious also to know why did you change subject? Absolutely. Um, so I was uh, raised on a farm in rural Canada, in, in Saskatchewan, um, and 
had always had an interest in the Middle East, in, in the Mashriq. Uh, for, for whatever reason, that, that area of the world just always, always spoke to me. Um, and as I continued um, my own personal historical studies and my uh, university studies as well, it became very clear to me that I wanted to study uh, Palestine as well. Um, and through, through some upper level history seminars in my undergrad, um, just really wanted to look at Jerusalem as well, especially right after the Nakba, um, and to figure out why the United Nations was so adamant on making Jerusalem a part of its, uh, or get it under its control. Um, so just kind of naturally through interests and by taking classes and learning more, um, came, came to study uh, Jerusalem. It's a, it's a bit of a bit of a rough path getting from a farm in Saskatchewan to uh, studying Jerusalem and I'm definitely a sojourner as well in, in Palestinian uh, studies and in um, Mashriq studies as well um, but yeah that's, that's basically what how, how how I got to write a write a thesis and spend two years um, writing about writing about the city. Now you're, you're working on something very different um, which you know might surprise many but um, given the fact that Jerusalem is such a complicated uh, case study, I, I'm not also surprised by the fact that you chose to work on something, uh, let's say, not far away because you're still focusing on the Mashrik. So sort of uh, you're, you're taking the, the larger region, but you decided to stay away. Was that such an intimidating topic, working on Jerusalem? It was a lot of fun working, working on Jerusalem in, in a lot of ways, um, just because of not only is the city itself very interesting, but then you get to grapple with this, this Western imagination and mythos that, it, that has come about Jerusalem as well, um, kind of within a Edward Said Orientalist idea of, of a creation of Jerusalem and being able to work with that, which is also why I used the United Nations as, um, as the primary um, archival sources for, for this project um, was because of that. Um, and my, um, my PhD studies still focus on the United Nations, specifically UNESCO, um, just broadening it, broadening it out a little bit more, not because Jerusalem is so intimidating, um, just as I feel like I was able to tell, to tell that story. And I'm a very curious person. I have many, many interests and, and seeing how the Meshrik interacts with different regions of the world at different times as well um, is is what I'll be looking at moving forward here. So the title of your thesis is Only Pleasing Themselves, the United Nations Internationalization of Jerusalem, 1947-1954. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the internationalization plan? What was that? What, what exactly the United Nations were thinking about? Absolutely. Um, so internationalization itself is a pretty jargony word in, in a lot of ways. It's, it's a lot of syllables, and it basically just means control, uh, but also this idea of making Jerusalem an international city outside of the sovereignty of, um, of Palestinians, of uh, Zionists, Israelis, and um, outside of any broader um, Arab governments, specifically Hashemite Jordan. Um, and this idea came about uh, kind of slowly, um, starting, starting initially with um, 
right after Ottoman capitulation or even before um, in 1918, uh, we see references to something known as a special international regime um, and a permanent international regime for Jerusalem as well. Um, Sykes-Picot mentions this uh, very briefly. There's mention of protection as well in the Hussein McMahon correspondence. Um, it's referenced in um, 1920 in San Remo, Italy, in a, in a conference there, um, as well as in the formation of the British mandate over Palestine as well in 1922. So we see this slowly, slowly coming and what the United Nations ended up doing um, is inherent and was inheriting this, this lineage of slow building special status for, for Jerusalem. Um, and the UN was really the one that ran, that ran with this idea in, in a whole new way. Um, and writing, writing resolutions, uh, writing draft statutes, having commissions, all, all of these things in a more official way to try to make Jerusalem this, this city that was basically cookie-cuttered out of um, the partition plan as well. Um, so the, um, the Palestinian area, the Israeli area, and then this special international regime, which was just kind of meant to be lifted in, a, in, a, in an odd way, in a way that it never really had too much of a precedent either, um, lifted outside of the sovereignties of any of the, um, of the local nations around and put into the control of, there are many iterations of how this control was gonna look, but essentially out of the control and into the control of the General Assembly of the newly formed United Nations as well. I wanna to talk to you about uh, and ask about, you know, there is resolution 181, 194. And, but you mentioned something, and so I really want to ask a question and thought to ask you later. Do you believe the United Nation really wanted to rule Jerusalem somehow? And how that would have happened? I don't think they wanted to rule Jerusalem so much as they felt the need to rule Jerusalem. Um, I, I don't think, just looking at the way that there were correspondences in, in the archives, the, the, the people who were on the ground and in um, like Success New York at, at UN headquarters kind of saw this as a responsibility in, in a lot of ways. Um, and especially with uh, the League of Nations folding and the United Nations coming in, this was, this was an opportunity to really show the international clout of the new of the new organization as well um, so i think it was a little bit more responsibility than it than it was desire um, to to rule and to govern jerusalem because it took a lot of effort there was a ton of effort put into this um, and a lot of haphazard effort as well um, of going through the motions of, of just trying to trying to succeed but not really doing anything to actually bring about that success um, or, to, or to have any long-term success. Because really the only thing that the United Nations did um, was write a whole bunch of resolutions saying that Jerusalem was, was in their control, um, which understandably were quickly ignored and um, called out by, by local leaders in, in Palestine um, who either wanted control of Jerusalem themselves 
or just saw this as an infringement of, of sovereignty and opening up a whole can of worms about, um, about future territorial questions. So out of curiosity, if you say that this was a need, more than really than a want, uh, was the need originating in religion? Was like uh, the idea of uh, protecting this holy place, uh, mostly for Christians, because in the end, uh, I guess, and in, in your thesis, you talk about also the, you know, the role of a various religious organization. So can you speak about you know, the role of religion in, in the UN and their uh, need to uh, protect Jerusalem? That's where the pressure came from in, in a lot of ways, um, both within and outside of the United Nations. Um, so a lot of the, the member nations in the General Assembly uh, the, the biggest push came from specifically Catholic, um, Catholic nations. Um, there was also a ton of letters received, both during um, UNSCOP, um, the, the Special Commission on Palestine, and then also through the work of the Palestine Conciliation Commission, the PCC, which is the one that I focused on in, in my thesis. Um, there, were, there were letters sent by different patriarchs uh, from, from different... Uh, denominations, um, mostly in, in the Western world, a lot from the United States, a lot from the United Kingdom. Um, and there were also two papal encyclicals that Pope Pius XII um, uh, offered as well, saying that these holy places need to be protected. Um, then there's also this idea that um, the, this, this fear and, and concept that is not correct uh, because you can you can go through Ottoman history and see how um, how Muslim um, governments had protected these places but this idea that the only true protection could come from from Christianity um, I think the United Nations made an error in being too strong on the religious side and thinking that religion was the primary marker of difference in the region when there was a lot of coexistence um, Osama Maktizi and Michelle Compost have very, very good publications on this. Uh, if you're interested in looking at more of how religion has been drummed up a little bit more in, in Jerusalem, um, but I think there was a, that was the easy target and the easy way to gain sympathy um, for this internationalization cause was by looking at religion and that really wasn't the biggest issue um, for Palestinians, for Arabs, or for, for Zionists. And I must say that, uh, just because you mentioned a few scholars, that recently uh, Ilan Pape was on, um, on the show and he talked about his new publication that will be available, I think, at the beginning of 2023. And he's looking at the role of religion, sort uh, of in the international dimension related to the establishment of the State of Israel and Zionism. And so obviously religion was there. But now I want to go back to uh, sort of the beginning of the story and... Uh, you know, the United Nations in 1947 came up with a infamous, I would say, Resolution 181 calling essentially for the partition of Palestine and also with the idea of making Jerusalem uh, sort of this international uh, area. Can you tell us a little bit more about the origins of the resolutions and how did it play out uh, within the newly created uh, United Nations? Absolutely. Um, so... Essentially, just Resolution 181 is, is famous for the two-state solution um, of, a, of a Palestinian region, of a 
of uh, eventual Israeli um, region as well, Zionist region. And one resolution 181 generally gets overlooked for the third area as well, which was the international, international region of Jerusalem. And the United Nations figured out pretty quickly that this portion was getting ignored as well. Um, so 181 comes about in 1947, and then by mid-December of 1948, we see Resolution 194, which had, which had two goals. One, one was to address the, the refugee crisis, um, which, had, which had begun because of the Nakba. And the second one, and the one that I focused on, was uh, to bring about the permanent international regime to Jerusalem. So taking this initial idea that was, that was first put into Resolution 181, which was kind of the first UN official idea for, for Jerusalem, and then making it, uh, making it a pretty central part of Resolution 194. I'm curious about uh, the so-called Jerusalem question. What was that? It was many things, and that, and that was part of, part of the myriad of issues as well. Um, essentially, the Jerusalem question was a fabricated idea um, that um, the United Nations created a problem and decided that it was they were the only ones that could solve that problem. Um, Jerusalem obviously was was substantial was was a big portion of what this Palestine partition was going to be. Not not denying that it was, Jerusalem was a massive part of the uh, League of Nations mandate as well. But this idea of the Jerusalem question really elevated the mythos of, of the city and put the United Nations in a place where only it could solve its created problem. And, and the framing it of a problem as well um, gives this idea that peace is an event rather than a process as well. And one, one, of, one of the things I've been adamant about from the outset and continue to be, is that one of the major follies of the United Nations was attempting to make um, the Palestinian-Israeli peace process into a peace event as well. And by honing in on Jerusalem, by focusing in on one urban center, one city, um, and trying to, or, yeah, trying, trying to make that the big, the big portion, as well as um, seeing that as the big sticking point, was really trying to uncomplicate a very complicated issue as well. Oh, I wonder about your judgment. I mean, do you think there was like a degree of, uh, let me put it, let me rephrase it. Do, do you think there was like, I mean, it sounds like very naive what they were trying to do. I mean, I was wondering, you know, you looked at all of the records and saw, how did you find all of this material in terms of like, did, did they really believe they could achieve that? Or were there like people suggesting, well, you know, this is an idea, but really it's not going to be a, a workable solution? Uh, off the start, people believe that this could happen, um, at least in correspondences between. I, I didn't look at any like personal um, personal letters from, from that time. There were a few like biographies written a few decades after that, um, that looked in, in retrospect that this was maybe not the greatest idea or not, or not the most feasible as well. Um, 
but at the time, and especially in uh, 48, 49, which was at the, at, at the height of these, um, of this work, it, it was believed that, that this was possible. Um, otherwise, I don't think there would have been, sorry, I don't think there would have been so many conferences, um, so many um, discussions, um, so many people hired and, and placed in, into the region to, to make this happen. Um, I don't think there was a naivety either so much. Um, it's just, there, there, there was a, there was a dream in, in a lot of ways and, and this idea that, that it could happen. And if it would happen, that would be wonderful. Um, but it became evident pretty quickly that there was not gonna be local support for this as well. Uh, right, right from the initial conference, it was very easy to tell that uh, there's going to be too many sticking points, and um, nobody was going to no no Palestinian Arab or Israeli uh, political figures were going to want to give up the kind of sovereignty that the United Nations was asking for, as well. So then it became an idea of not making not so much making peace between um, Palestinians, Arabs, and, and Zionists, but having those groups um, come to a peaceful agreement with the United Nations mandate was, be, became, the, became the order of the day pretty, pretty quickly. Given the fact that you really talk about uh, the, the fact that there were a number of people that believed in this project, can you tell us a little bit more about how the UN practically envisioned uh, a Jerusalem under UN rule in terms of institution, borders, and also in terms of relations with uh, Palestinians and, well, Zionists and then later Israelis. How did this uh, project work, really? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So that, that went through many iterations as well. Um, the, the first idea, and, and the one that the, the, the article in Jerusalem Quarterly will be discussing, is uh, something called the Special Municipal Commissioner, which again is very jargony, it makes little sense, um, but that, that was basically a mayor or, or a quasi-mayor for, for Jerusalem that took all of um, all directions, all orders through the General Assembly. So this idea that the United Nations had, had somebody on the ground um, to, to govern, to mediate, um, mediation was a huge part of this. Um, the, the person who was settled upon, uh, his name was Harold Evans, and he was a Quaker. And a big reason for, for choosing a Quaker was um, neutrality as, as well. Um, so so that, was, that was one of them. That was the first one that they pursued. Um, and that just did not work at all. Um, Evans never, or he was in Jerusalem for about three hours, and that's it, um, because of um, non-pacifism and, and the war that had broken out right after uh, the Nakba. Um, so he was never able to really be in Jerusalem and resigned his post as well. Um, so then after that, after that failure, that's when Resolution 194 really, really came in. And, and the main idea of, of 194 from a practical sense was to create something called the draft instrument, which, which was like the blueprint for how the governance was going to work. And that document basically said nothing concrete. Um, not, nothing really came through that uh, too, too much. And it was very, very quickly um, denied by... Um, by the Israeli government, by uh, Arab governments, um, there's there's a distinct lack, a distinct lack through all of this of any Palestinian government um, correspondence discussion. Um, the UN looked uh, primarily to uh, King Abdullah of of Jordan for for um, broader Arab voices, and there was a definite homogenization um, of Arab everything throughout this whole process. So we don't see too, too much like distinct Palestinian voices in this. Um, but anybody, any local figure saw this draft instrument and just thought, nope, this is, this is not gonna, this is not gonna fly. This is not gonna happen. Um, where then the UN decided to try the special municipal commissioner again. This time the, person lasted nine days before before resigning understanding that there was no way that such a thing could work um after that there was another um another resolution that that, that came in which uh established jerusalem under the trusteeship council which was essentially the united nations reformation of the mandate system that was in the League of Nations. And in a common theme, this also went over very poorly with all local governments and never, never got off the ground. Um, there was another draft statute 
written that just basically tried to will this idea of a special international regime on, um, but it was mostly just writing, um, writing resolutions, uh, passing things through the general assembly floor and hoping that something stuck in, in a lot of ways. There, there, wasn't, there wasn't like a real strong foundational government structure outside of the special municipal commissioner um, idea. So there was, there was many resolutions, many draft statutes, um, and, and all just really tried to drum up the idea of the UN officialdom to give it legitimacy more so than anything tangible, which is another reason why a, a lot of these failed as well, is that it was mostly about the idea and not about the practice of making Jerusalem this, this separate entity. Was there any discussion about the borders? I mean, if you look at a map of Jerusalem, how Jerusalem would have looked like in terms of uh, its size and shape, um, you know, under a UN administration? Yes, that, that was brought up a, a fair number of times and was one of the big um, talking points of local governments as well. Um, ben ben Gurion was very was very adamant that what the UN was only interested in was the holy sites. So it was more, um, dis discussed more of how the UN could protect these sites more so than a whole city or a whole region. What, what the UN wanted was like a, roughly about a 30 mile radius around the circumference of, of Jerusalem as well um, to, to incorporate more area, to have a bit more of a buffer, a, a buffer zone as, as well. Um, so there, there were discussions of, of borders. A lot of the Jerusalem talk though just got shut down very quickly and it never got into the depth where like the real intricate discussions of borders came, came into play all, all that much. It was, it was mostly just a, a discussion of, do you mean the city or the holy sites? Um, and then the UN was kind of saying, no, we mean, we mean the whole city and even more of, of the surrounding area as well, um, which, yeah. Lots of wishful thinking, but not real plans, which brings me to the other very practical question. I mean, if you want to have a separate entity, I, I guess, there must have been discussion about uh, the financial uh, situation of a city. Who would have paid for the city and how the city would have survived? I mean, I guess tourism could have been uh, an important element, uh, pilgrims. But yet, there's not enough to sustain a growing city as it could, and it certainly has been Jerusalem and later. So what was the talk about the finance? Who should have paid for this uh, UN-administered uh, Jerusalem? So that's a very good question and one that I was shocked never really came up all, all that much, which is yet another sign that this was more about the idea than, than the actual practice. Um, there, there was like money set aside from the governments of the General Assembly as well. Um, like just kind of, just kind of set set aside for this and that number was drastically lowered um, in about 1950 when, when it became clear that this was not going to happen. Um, 
but there, there were talks of like, how much money do we have for guards? How much money do we have for security? Um, how much are we going to pay the diplomats who are going to um, Beirut for, for conferences, going to different places within Palestine? Uh, there was a, a, a massive multi-month conference in Lausanne, Switzerland as well. Um, committee members from, from Turkey, France, and the United States who did a lot of traveling back and forth to consult with um, their, their governments as well. Um, to, to say nothing of like the mediation stuff happening on like roads and, and, and those, kinds of, those kinds of places as well with, with Ralph Bunch and um, Count Folke Bernadotte. Um, there, there was a lot of traveling that, that had to be done with this as well. And this was kind of just accepted in, in a lot of ways. There was, not, there, there was not the kind of financial rigor discussion that, that I was expecting either. Um, and especially not discussion of how much like the annual finances would be should this permanent international regime be, be set up. Um, that's, that was either in the classified portions of, of the archives, um, or I'd be more inclined to say that just wasn't, wasn't there because the UN didn't get to that point quite, quite yet. I'm interested in the international dimension. I mean, you know, we talk about the United Nations, but you have like specifics about the countries that supported this idea and the countries that did not support uh, the idea of uh, a UN uh, ruled Jerusalem. Yes. Um, so the, the main support and, and the real vocal support came from countries in um, Central and Latin America in, in a lot of ways. Uh, Guatemala in particular was, was, a, very, was a very vocal uh, vocal country for this on, on the General Assembly floor um, with, with the, and this is where religion comes back in, is, is seeing the United Nations as impartial, but also supporting Christian interests in, in the city. So the UN's towing this delicate line the whole time as well of being a representative of all member nations, but also thinking that some member nations should rise up higher, higher than others. Um, also at this time, the UN's a lot smaller than, um, than it is now, um, in part because of continuing empire, uh, but also it's just very new. Um, so there's not too, too many countries that, that, that come in. Um, we're, we're also in, in the phase of like the very, very early Cold War as well. And with the United States being on this PCC commission, the, uh, the commission that came out of resolution 194, uh, we see the, the Soviet Union and um, its, its states being more, more against these, these actions um, in, in the hopes of setting up in, in the area as well, or at the very least providing an alternative um, to it. So I have a couple of questions about the what if, right? So I'm curious to your knowledge and your experience with the material. Could have this plan have worked? Or was it really doomed from the very beginning? I'm inclined to think that it was doomed 
from from the beginning uh, because of the lack of local support for it. I, I think the United Nations could have been more forceful in in promoting it. They were also towing a very a very delicate space as well of being comprised primarily of imperial nations under a, under an anti-imperial banner. So this idea of pushing stuff too much became unsavory pretty pretty quickly for for international optics as well of this new organization. Um, there was really no real support for for this at all. The only support that came was from some um, Arab countries, um, like Iraq and Syria, had had some um, had some support, but that was only for like mass uh, refugee uh, repatriation as well, which is something that um, Israel was not willing to budge on at all. Um, so any of, any of the conferences, any of the discussions reached a pretty quick stalemate because uh, the Arabs, generally speaking, wanted to talk about refugees and uh, Israelis wanted to discuss territorial issues and neither would discuss the other uh, without, without theirs being addressed. Um, so there, there was just no real local support for this for this project, which is something that saw in the writings of in like 1952, 1953, when UN members and individuals within the UN machinery started to recognize this, that there just wasn't that support and the efforts that they did um, may have worked, but just did not stand a chance of working because of the lack of support. Um, and the UN really did not listen to the concerns raised about Jerusalem, about the control of Jerusalem um, that, that, that were posited. And, and that's where the title of, of the thesis comes from as well, is that the, these plans of the United Nations were really great for the United Nations, but it, they were only pleasing themselves in, in, in a lot of ways. And there was just, there's nothing that they could really do to bully this plan in without looking very, very imperial. Um, and that brings me to the question of your chronology. In fact, you know, when one reads your title, 1947 to 1954, one may suspect, like, why 1954, right? I mean, in 1948, the city was divided, west uh, under the Israeli, the east uh, under the Jordanians. And so, to what extent, actually, the UN kept working on, on, a, on a plan to internationalize the city, despite the facts on the ground were suggesting that uh, the two powers simply split the city in two. Mm -hmm. So the, so the continuation into 1954 was mostly to understand how opinions had changed in, in a more local context. So as, um, as Israelis gained more and more territory and as the settler colonialism continued in, in Palestine, um, Arab countries started looking a lot more to United Nations to, to stop that, that expansion. And, and there was a, and there were references made um, to UN efforts to internationalize Jerusalem as, as a way of saying, look, you guys had territorial interests like five years ago. Let's let's try to revisit this a little bit. 
Um, so there was lots of letters uh, sent by and, and jointly signed by governments of six, eight, ten um, Arab states, um, just really petitioning the United Nations to um, to do something about um, about Israeli settlements in, in in Palestine. So that was mostly the reason. Sorry for for continuing um, like the the chronology into 1954. Um, there wasn't so much of, of grappling with, with Jerusalem at that point, but seeing local, local governments, especially um, various Arab governments, point to those efforts as, as, a, as, a, as a kind of call um, for the United Nations to re-engage with territorial questions in Palestine. Very practical question. Was the plan shelved? Uh, or just uh, disappear from the agenda? Is there a moment in history where at some point someone said, okay, this is not going to work? Um, so for, for the PCC one, uh, for Resolution 194, that got shelved uh, when the Trusteeship Council came, came in. So, so that resolution um, was, was, was very much more linked to Resolution 181 rather than 194. And the PCC just kind of got pushed into, into nothingness in, in a lot of ways. So the, the main organ for the, this UN push for interna internationalization was shelved in 1950. Um, after the um, Trusteeship Council draft statute was, was shown to be unsavory, and unwanted by local governments, that quickly got shelved as well. Um, there were still some discussions into late 1950, but by the time we get into like the mid-1951, mid um, for sure by 1952, there's no real substantial discussions of like practical, implementable internationalization going on uh, by anybody with any authority at, within the United Nations on the General Assembly for um, this just kind of falls falls out of favor in a lot of ways by early by the early 1950s. I have one last question. It's very much about uh, fast forwarding, uh, you know, to to the present. I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the legacy of this UN plan uh, of internationalizing Jerusalem. I mean, obviously, you know, we can say that. Uh, Resolution 194 was never implemented, so the the return of refugees to their place of origin, obviously we know, remains controversial and effectively not implemented. But I was wondering if there are other legacies of that of those ideas and that project. There's there's two two distinct ones. One a little bit more tangible, another one more abstract let's go with the tangible one first um this idea that jerusalem is still very central and very contested um from within an international perception really really still stands um not that not that jerusalem is the only place that 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 gains attention but but this focus on jerusalem as being a key portion of um the the Palestinian Israeli peace processes is, is one of the is one of the legacies. The second is that this was one of the 
one of the first real attempts at peace um, and uh, it was flawed from from the outset uh, local local peoples were invited to share opinions and then those opinions were not listened to really really at all um, so the, the this idea of distrust of the United Nations came through as well and more generally for for any kind of international international body or or foreign body trying to trying to engage in mediation as well and this idea that the peace process has continued still continues will continue to, to go on this this was an early moment for it to set a more proper track um, a more a track with more with more dignity with more local agency and that was not adhered to the one of the first iterations of of the peace process um, was not really about peace at, at all it was i think i mentioned this earlier it was about local local peoples coming to peace with the un idea uh rather than amongst each other and and that that idea that concept still still continues on um seven decades later and unfortunately looks like we'll continue on for much longer and and this was an opportunity um it's not like it's not like if this was successful everything would have been would have been rosy nothing like that but it would have set a, a a very a very different precedent for how negotiations um transpired and could transpire moving forward and because this was um because this did not work because this was a failure to the extent that it was it set it set the the track for for how negotiations would be moving forward this was uh, harris fort harris is currently a phd student at university of saskatchewan and the author of a brilliant ma thesis called one pleasing themselves the united nations internationalization of jerusalem 1947 to 1954 which is available online i will post uh, the link in the uh, page notes of the podcast and also the author of an article uh, for the jerusalem quarterly i won't say i wanted the job the united nations search for a special municipal commissioner in jerusalem 1948-1949 that will be published early in 2023 as part of a uh, JQ92, which will be dedicated to, uh, in fact, what uh, you were just talking about, uh, the unfulfilled schemes, what could have been in Jerusalem but didn't. Eris, thank you so much. Thank you very much for, for having me on and uh, for everybody for listening as well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, Please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.